Hello and welcome to this, the second part of a two-part interview I conducted with Kazuo Ishiguro last month to coincide with the publication of Nocturnes, his first collection of short stories. You can hear our conversation about that book in part one of this podcast. In the second part, I talked to Ishiguro about some of his earlier books, including the Booker Prize-winning Remains of the Day and The Unconsoled, a book which initially baffled many critics, but which has since been acclaimed as one of the author's greatest achievements. He also tells me at the end of the interview what he's working on now. My starting point for this part of the interview was Ishiguro's childhood. I'd read that he came to England from Japan at the age of five, but until the age of 15 his family's plan was to return to Japan. I asked him what effect this had on him growing up thinking he might not remain here and that there was another distant country which one day might become home. Well, obviously I think that changed you know, during those 10 years. I think early on when I was six or seven I, I very much thought of Japan as my home and I very much thought we, you know, we were about to return at any moment and I was much more in touch with Japanese culture then I, I was being sent um, comics and books uh, and so so there was a there was an attempt to keep up the, the, the Japanese side of me and I was kept in touch with children's culture in Japan but I think as the years went on I in the way that children do I, mean, I couldn't quite believe it you know I think children do tend to live in the moment more anyway. And I, I stopped thinking really about Japan in any conscious way. And of course, when you're eight or nine, you know, what's going to happen in three months' time is, is just far too distant to, to worry about, let alone what's going to happen at the end of the year. So I still intellectually knew that um, we were likely to return to Japan at any point. And, th- and th- that was the reality about my um, my father's work for the British government. I mean, he, he was a scientist and he was, he was working just temporarily. His research was being funded by the, by the National Institute of Oceanography in Britain, but um, that, that would come to an end. You know. uh, but I know that another part of me never believed that that would happen. Perhaps that was foolish, but I mean, I, I, I was quite confident that I was going to remain in Britain. And it was really when I was about 15, that, in fact, when that big decision was made, that it that was the first time it occurred to me that it was for real, that there was a possibility that, um, you know, my parents could go back and leave me in, in England. And so oddly, that, that was the kind of the, the least kind of stable period, if you like. And I was old enough to think about these things much more clearly. You know, I was almost an adult then, and um, everything was much more real. And then the decision was made, you know, my father turned down a university position that had been actually held open for him for about a year. And that, that, that was a kind of a watershed point in my life, I think, when um, I thought, ah, yes, well, I am here now. But Japan actually remained a very important part of my life in my head. But it ceased to be somewhere I was really going to go. And so I, I was left with a strange alternative home that I didn't know what to do with, because I wasn't going to go back there. You know, it, it was fading in my head, in memory. I, I was old enough to realize that it was literally fading in the sense that that kind of Japan was was disappearing. You know, Japan changed enormously, you know, Japanese society changed enormously between 1960 when the family left and, you know, and, the, and the beginning of the 70s. I mean, it was, so in a sense, although I, I kind of thought started to think of myself very much as British, uh, I think that something was born in me that became much more concerned about Japan. How do I place Japan in my head? What does it mean to me? And if it's going to just fade in my mind, shouldn't I do something to preserve it? And in fact, aren't there a lot of 
aren't there many things that are very precious for me in that little world of memories and speculation that, that I used to call Japan? Isn't there something very precious about that? And I shouldn't just let it just disappear with the years so that I, I'll just turn into some sort of Englishman. Now, looking back, I think I think it was the culmination of that process that, that started me writing. Because when I started to write fiction, um, I did so quite suddenly. I didn't really have any great ambitions to be a writer before that. And in my early 20s, I found myself writing stories that very much recreated that Japan that, that I always thought about. And so I began by writing Japanese stories and then Japanese novels in my set very much in my Japan. And I think that was very much um, some sort of answer to this question. You know, what do I do with this precious but non-existent and rapidly fading Japan? Well, the answer ended up, well, preserve it in a novel, put it in a novel and it will be safe there. It will exist there. And that was a Japan, as you say, of the imagination and but historically of the, the immediate post-war period. I mean, were you were you conscious that there were historical questions that you wanted to work through by means of those first two novels? I think once again at the front of my head, you, you know, because I was a I was I was a young man in my twenties. I had lived through the much of the Cold War. Yeah, you know, we, we were very conscious of things like um, totalitarianism, uh, communism, fascism. Perhaps we are much more keenly aware of those things than young people today. And so it, it would be very natural for me to, to think about Japanese history of that time, very much in, in terms of, well, you know, what would I as an ordinary citizen have done had I lived just one generation earlier? Would I too have succumbed to that kind of fervor? Would I have, just to put it crudely, would I have gone fascist? Or would I would I have had the perspective and the courage to to stand away from that? And if I had, what would have happened to me? I mean, it, it, I think it's that these are quite natural questions to ask. Even if you were British, I think a lot of my peers would ask these kind of questions of themselves. If you were Japanese or German, and your parents had come through that period, um, it's a very very natural question to ask. So I think those questions were there at the forefront of my mind. But I think a lot of the emotional impetus for my wanting to write came from these things I've just described. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of preserving some idea of home. And that was something far less intellectual, for something I, I, can't, I can't justify so much in, in terms of an intellectual project. Uh, it, it was more like an emotional one. You know, that, um, it was a need. And I think that those both of those elements are there in my earlier novels. Yes, there are the, there is a, an attempt to to grapple with issues about um, political fervor and nationalism, extreme nationalism, and what you do when you suddenly realise that you know, it was all a mistake, and all your best efforts were given to something bad. What do you do, um, um, and what what's happened to you morally? But along with alongside that that kind of theme i think that, that i think those books i i can see now looking back those books are full of a kind of a a kind of a nostalgia you know perhaps it's not a real nostalgia because uh, i can't possibly have been nostalgic for a place i only knew you know for five years you know at the very beginning of my life i mean but in a way i, I do feel they are in some ways authentically nostalgic 
it's a very emotional attempt to um, map out and recreate that a world that I, I once had and lost in, as fully and um, as three-dimensionally as, as I could. And would it be fair to say that with your third book, The Remains of the Day, you've moved away from a Japanese setting, but those same, or some of those same questions about how how are we to behave, how would we behave confronted with fascism, those, those big historical questions are still very much preoccupying you. So I think after the first two novels, I felt I'd satisfied this um, need to to preserve Japan, my Japan. But my writing had had evolved in a certain way by then, and I, I had become interested in questions that that had very little to do with you know, Japan that had, that had come out of those first two books. And yes, I mean you put it very succinctly there when you when you summarised, but. But in a sense, it was a more abstract question. That it's more general than that, even. I mean, it, it's really, I suppose, both of those early books, Japanese books, did ask that question. Um, isn't it very easy to to waste your life? Because we do tend to to make our decisions according to the values around us. Most of us aren't strong enough to stand against the tide, or to most of us don't have an extraordinary sense of perspective. And so we do what everybody else is doing. And doesn't this make us very vulnerable to to making a hash of things or, or wasting our lives? That theme is there very much, except this time in an English context, you know, um, in, in the story of Stevens the butler in The Remains of the Day. But I, in The Remains of the Day, I, I wanted to introduce another dimension that I felt had perhaps been missing in my in my Japanese novels, uh, and once again, it relates to the same question: you know, How do you waste your life? <laughs> and I wanted to say, yes, you could waste it in the, in a the moral sense. You give everything, you give your career, your best efforts to something that later turns out to be something quite reprehensible, and you you try to tell yourself, oh, okay, that wasn't my fault. Um, I did my best, but I mean, I, I left all the big decisions to the person I was serving. Yes, we're very vulnerable to wasting our lives in that sense but i also wanted to to look at how you could waste your life in the emotional in the personal arena and so the remains of the day looks at both of these things it's it's about someone who who wastes his life in both senses yes he's a he's quite a failure that, <laughs> that character so it, it's about somebody who doesn't allow himself to love or be loved so I, I felt the remains of the day was, to some extent, had many of the same strands as as the previous books, um, but um, I think it, it's the first time that I explored that theme um, thoroughly. So the remains of the day won the Booker Prize, and the novel before that, an artist of the floating world, had won the Whitbread Prize, and you'd been picked as one of the best of young British novelists before the age of th the time you were thirty, a few years before that. So there you were in your early thirties. I mean, did you did you have a sort of dizzying sense of of, of potential, or did you? Did, how did ha having re achieved so much by that age, what did that do then to the way you thought about where your, your your writing was going to go from that point? Well, I was thirty four years old when I won the Booker Prize. I don't. I, in some ways, that so sounds young, but it was around this time that I remember I I first had this conversation with my wife. And it's a conversation we've had many times since then. Other people often ask me about it. We realized around that time 
that one of the great mistakes was to think, if you were a novelist, this is, that if you were around that age, 34, 35, that you are still at the early point in your career and that you could talk in terms of being promising or in terms of potential. Because quite accidentally, we were looking through um, a, a literary encyclopedia around this time. And it occurred to us that many of the great masterpieces were written indeed by people in their mid-30s. And in fact, many, well, in fact, overwhelming percentage of writers, I'm, I'm really talking about novelists, I should emphasize this, uh, they tended to peak before 40, and certainly before 45. And the typical pattern is that they do their best work in their 30s or early 40s, and then their prestige continues to, to get higher and higher. So that you know, by the time they're in their 60s or 70s, that you know, they have Nobel prizes given to them, and so on. They become grand grand figures in in the world and terribly respected. But they're really being respected for and praised for the work they did in their 30s or 40s when they were officially promising. I remember we we stopped at that point and said, um, actually, we've got to be very careful here. You know, we shouldn't start thinking that I am a young novelist. You know, I'm around the same age, well, not, not only slightly younger than the novelist who wrote War and Peace, Ulysses. I'm already a decade older than novelists who wrote books like Wuthering Heights, Pride and Prejudice. I'm only a few years off the, the, the age that Chekhov and Kafka died. And, and you can just go on and on, and particularly the American writers, you know, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Salinger, Mailer. Um, you go on and on and on, Faulkner. Take away the work they did in their 30s. I mean, you're left with almost nothing. And so far from thinking, oh, you know, great potential. I mean, I realized then that you actually this, this is when most novelists do do their, do their stuff. You know, um, and that I, sh I have to make the best of the few years that were remaining <laughs> after my mid-30s. I mean, I can, I can see that insight coupled with the great success you'd had as being, you know, paralyzing. How did you, how did you, you know, avoid being paralyzed by thinking both you've had this great success and lots of novelists have peaked by the time they're in their mid-30s or late-30s? Well, I was grateful that I had this insight when I was still 34 or 35. I can't remember. It wasn't precise. I can't remember precisely place it, but it, I was something like that. I was still young enough for this not to be utterly depressing news. And if anything, it excited me, but it, it almost gave me license to really go for it. And I think it was a good thing. I think it took me away from thinking too much about success in the material sense. And the paradox is, of course, if you, if you are praised and given prizes quite early in your career like that, you, you, you become less hungry about that aspect of things. You almost take it for granted. It's not a good thing to do, but in some ways it's not a bad thing to do. I mean, it, it, you shouldn't become too hungry and too obsessed about um, material success. But I can see that if you don't have it, it's very understandable that it becomes an obsession. You know, I'm writing book after book. I think I'm a decent writer. Why, why doesn't anyone praise me? Why hasn't anyone given me a, a major prize? I can, I, I've seen lots of writers um, getting very depressed about this and I, I absolutely understand that and sympathize with that but you know if, if you don't have to go through that you know it's better not to go through it and and one of the great things about having received major prizes very early in my career is that to some extent I've, I felt I had done that you know I, I'd done the prize thing 
I can go on to something else. And so that feeling coupled with this idea that, well, you've really got to go for it now because, because these are your best years, which is really what my wife said to me. <laughs> it kind of released me. For, I, I cared less about how people might receive my next book in, in the short term or, or sales um, and, and things like that. You know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing books as though there were applications for, um, for a literary prize. So, in a sense, you had been pursuing certain themes in those first three books. With The Unconsoled, you really did something quite different, and, and some people responded to that quite hostilely. I mean, even on the, on the back cover of the, the paperback, the Faber paperback of that book, it mentions consternation as, as one of the reactions to that book. So, in any sense, was it conceived as a, a, a provocation to show that you, you know, you, there, there were more there were more things in your armory than, than people had associated you with before and you, you, you were going to be experimental and, and show people that, you know, there were more sides to you? I don't think I was so conscious of um, trying to upturn people's expectations. I mean, you know, my relationship with my readers wasn't, wasn't at that sort of level, really. I mean, I, I wasn't someone who sat down to write things to, to show, you know, critics or show readers anything, really. I mean, I was... I was trying to write the very best novel I could, <laughs> and I, I was writing. Um, I was going somewhere else with my fiction. I, I wanted to to write in a different way. I was very excited about um, the novel I was writing. I, I, I remain excited about it. I, I feel that there are things that that I have left unfathomed about that whole experience of writing *The Unconsoled*, and um, it's a well. I'll, I feel I um, I return to again and again in different ways. Where did it come from, that book? I mean, what, can you sort of say how it took shape and what was going on in your imagination? Because it, it was a, a departure from what had gone before. Well, there are several starting points. One was a conversation, once again, with my wife. I mean, you, you think that the two of us just sit there talking about literature all the time. We don't. We talk about utterly trivial things most of the time. But once we were in a Greasy Spoon cafe in uh, southeast London, and I remember over kind of hamburger and chips or something she said um we were talking about international novels you know what novels that that would appeal you know to people in different cultures and the assumption was it'd be nice if my books um, could be understood and appreciated by people in different cultures you know, not just western culture or british culture and she said i remember her saying of course a, a very universal language is the language of dream it's a really strange language but it's one that everyone understands to some extent because we all dream. And maybe you should look at this. And I got very interested by that. I thought that that is indeed true. It, it is a kind of a universal language. And it's, it's a drastically alternative language as well. I, I, I started to think about my own dreams, not because you know, I wanted to analyze them or you know, go, I wasn't that interested in dreams, to be honest, per se. But I thought if I, if I looked at the dreaming mind, as though the dreaming mind was another was a fellow novelist and i was asking myself oh you know what kind of narrative strategies is, is this novelist using um, if, if i looked at a, a little fragment of dream that I, I could remember you know or typically somebody would you know a typical dream that somebody would relate to me and i actually looked at the grammar in which the the story unfolded i thought it presented some very interesting opportunities I saw the potential of this. And I, I, okay, so so that that's where that, that kind of dream grammar, if you like, or a dream narrative style. I I started to actually 
work out you know how stories were told often by the dreaming mind and this allowed me to think well actually rather than what I had done in the past in the past I'd written stories about a person's life and I had usually told that life in retrospect you know a person quite advanced in age looks back over his or her life you get scenes in flashback or or, or at least in you know in memory from key points you get a kind of a, like a, you end up with a, with a kind of a life story like that. I thought, well, here, instead of doing it like that, or indeed doing it in a kind of chronological linear way, you know, as you would in a conventional biography, you could actually tell the story of a person's life in this dream, in, instead in dream language. Well, I thought, well, why not have the protagonist just turn up in some strange town? And he would meet the people who live in that town. And to some extent, they really would be the people who live in that town. But actually, just as in Dream, these people will stand for people in his past. In other words, he would have just appropriated the faces of the people he happened to see, you know, people he knew only superficially, to stand for his parents or whoever, you know, uh, relationships from long, long ago in the past. So that chunks of his past would become more or less superimposed over over the present as he wandered around this town doing what he has to do during the few days he's in, in this town. It, it was an alternative way, if you like, of um, of telling the story of somebody's life. The emotional history of that, that man's life is there in these encounters. But often he is encountering distorted versions of himself when he's younger or having an argument with with a parent or, or a, an old girlfriend or an estranged wife. That was the kind of the, the strategy, if you, if you like. And it struck me that th this, this could open up um, many possibilities that wouldn't be open to the more conventional way of telling a story of a person's life through, through recollection and flashback. I mentioned that some critics had responded with consternation and hostility, but it seems, you know, comparatively quickly in terms of literary history, that it has been reappraised and and sort of accepted as one of your finest books. I mean, is, is that do you is it the achievement of which you are you are most proud? Would you say is it possible to talk in those terms? Well, I I try not to think of my, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but I, you know, it's, it's a bit mm. like with children. I try mm. not to have favourites. Mm. The Unconsoled is the one that is the book of mine, my own that I, intrigues me the most. Uh, as I said before, it's, it's, it's one that I feel I haven't quite finished. You know, I can go back into that territory and find more there. I, I don't feel I've got to the bottom of that project yet. You're right, it, it has been reappraised. I think it's still, a, it's still a book that splits people, though. When The Observer, about three years ago or four years ago, had that poll of... Um, yeah, you know, fifty critics and writers were asked to nominate what they thought were the best novels in the last twenty-five years or something. I was surprised that um, it was the Unconsoled that that came equal third uh, above Remains of the Day, uh, and it was there with some very great books, you know, like Midnight's Children, Atonement, who were all tied for third place. <laughs> and of course, these polls, you know, don't necessarily mean very much. But it, it, it I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have dreamt at the time when the book was published that that would be happening only relatively a few years later, that it could turn up so high on, 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 in, a, in a major kind of poll like that. So, th so that is gratifying. And when I do readings, there's always at least somebody in the audience who 
who asks a question about the unconsoled, they don't want to talk about the book I'm promoting. You know, they want, they've, they've got some question they've wanted to ask for a long time about the unconsoled. And so I think I, I, I quite like that. And it's, it's a book that other people haven't quite got to the bottom of either. But I'm, I'm always aware that there are, uh, there are people who like all my other books. They, they, they don't get on with that book. They don't know what to make of it. And you said it was a well to which you, you could keep going back. And in a sense, did it make possible the books that came after it? Yes, definitely. I, th I think uh, that, that's, um, I mean, well, I suppose there are three books that have come after The Unconsoled. It's not as though I've written a vast amount after The Unconsoled. But I, I think that that is true. I couldn't have written any of those books without The Unconsoled. I felt I had a much wider remit. And I felt I, I think also just technically, I, I felt I had a much larger terrain over which I felt confident. Thematically and technically, uh, I felt I felt I could do more things. I didn't feel necessarily that I had to go kind of dreamy and surreal all the time. But I knew that that was always a, a direction I could go in if I wanted to, even within one novel, you know, I could sometimes tilt things in that way. So even like the Nocturnes, my latest collection, which we were discussing earlier, I mean, these stories are are very naturalistic in a way, you know, they were, well, actually they were very realist in a way, I mean, very far from the unconsoled. But when you were talking about some of the comic moments, you know, they, they veer towards a kind of surrealism, I suppose. And and although it's, it's kept very much in the, because I think that's where the world of the stories takes place, it takes place much more in an everyday world. I think having gone into a very extreme, distorted, surreal world, it, it's become a fairly a fairly instinctive thing on my part now. If I'm looking for a comic turn in the story, I, I can I can quite easily go in a kind of surrealistic, in, into a kind of surreal mode without really thinking about it. So even in quite unlikely places, I think I think echoes of that crops up. But I I, I still feel that there's I have a lot lot more work left to do in that area, and I would like to refine. A lot of the things I did in the unconsoled as well. I mean, I I feel too. I I agree to some extent with the critics who don't like that book or the readers who don't like that book. I think there are some things that don't work. I think there are some things that do work and some things that don't work. And I would like to, I I would like to do more in that direction. Well, that that really leads me on to my final question, which is to ask you what challenges you are at the moment contemplating. I am quite some way into a, into a novel. I also have a few other projects on the go, which I've kind of abandoned for now. I mean, I, I was writing a something I think will be a novella set set in kind of Anglo-Saxon times. You know, really set at the time of what apparently the the Anglo-Saxon settlement. The, the Ro Romans have left Britain. There are these people, kind of Romano Celts, whatever you like to call call them, left behind on the island with vestiges of Roman culture vestiges of a pagan culture and then these Anglo-Saxons turn up and we're not quite sure what happened historically. I was writing a, um, something that would probably be something like a hundred page story but I, I put that on hold because I, I brought out a book of book of you know five stories and I thought I should write a novel so I'm, I'm writing a, a, a novel at the moment. I was talking to Kazuo Ishiguro about his books, past, present, and future. All his work is in print with Faber, and you can find out more details at faber.co.uk. 
My name is George Miller, and I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast. As well as a regular monthly podcast on new Faber books, look out for special podcasts throughout this Faber's 80th anniversary year, including a series of interviews with Faber poets, and in July, an extended interview with Dwyan of Crime Writers, P.D. James. I hope you'll be able to join me then. And until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.